Well, I know when I've been gone like every other week so far in June, it's, it feels maybe like whiplash going back to Matthew to some other sermon, back to Matthew. But uh, we are back to Matthew uh, this morning, looking at Matthew uh, chapter 20, uh, verses 17 through 34. Uh, you can find that on page number 981 of the Pew Bibles. Again, that's Matthew chapter 20, and we'll start at verse 17 and read until the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? James and John said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, this is the 
final scene in Matthew's gospel before he does enter Jerusalem and all the things we sing about will happen to him. And Father, we think of how tenderly he speaks to his disciples in the midst of their confusion about who he is and what it means to follow him. And we recognize ourselves in this story, God, and we, ha- we, we pray that you would show us Christ this morning. That we would see his greatness and his power and his love and his mercy. That we might be moved to cry out to him like these blind men every day, every moment, for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the uh, central claim of the Christian religion is that Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross, and then he rose from the dead three days later. And uh, those are the plain facts. But the question is, why? Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem to have all these things happen to him. And what does it mean for you and I that he is doing this, or that we see him doing this? And we're not free to answer those questions ourselves. Not only is the Bible very clear and specific about what happens to Jesus on the cross, but it also tells us why it happened and what it means for us. And in our passage today, as we are on the doorstep of Passion Week, Matthew will answer these questions for us. Our passage ends with Jesus leaving Jericho with all the crowds about to enter Jerusalem for the Passover. In the final week of his life where he will be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. But before he does, Matthew tells us the story to help us see these three things. First, he's going to tell us what is about to happen. And then he's going to tell us... Oh, we lost our... uh, He's going to tell us what is about to happen. There we go. Then he's going to tell us why it is going to happen. And then finally, what it will mean for us. So what is about to happen? Well, on one hand, we all know the answer to this question. We just said that the central claim of the Christian religion is that Jesus uh, suffered and died on a Roman cross and rose again three days later. But listen to how Jesus explains what is about to happen to his disciples. We're told, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. So notice, he doesn't want everyone to hear him explain this just yet. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus now has predicted his death two times prior to this. This is the third prediction of his death. But this time, 
He does it as he is going up to Jerusalem, which is Matthew's way of telling us that it's all about to happen. And so Jesus is more detailed this time. Not only will he be handed over to the chief priests and rise again on the third day, but his actual death will come at the hands of unclean Gentiles, where he will die the shameful death of a criminal, mocked and flogged and crucified. And if being mocked and flogged by unclean Gentiles wasn't bad enough, being crucified is even worse. For a Jew, there was not a death more humiliating and terrible than crucifixion, not only because of the unique and excessive physical pain that crucifixion would cause, but because being hanged on a tree meant that you were cursed by God. In Deuteronomy 21, Moses wrote this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. Which is one of the reasons Jesus' body is taken down before sunset. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So Jesus didn't just die on a Roman cross. He was humiliated. He was betrayed by his own people, handed over to unclean Gentiles, and died cursed by God. But that's not all. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, I will be delivered over to the chief priests. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered over. See, part of what happened is not just knowing the events, it's also knowing who all the events happened to. If I told you last night a woman was killed in a car accident, I would be telling you in some sense what happened. But if I told you your mother was killed in a car accident, all of a sudden what happened takes on a much deeper and more profound meaning. It's the same thing with Jesus. It's the Son of Man who will be delivered over. The Son of Man is a theologically loaded name. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel writes about a vision he received of heaven where one like a son of man is given a kingdom by the ancient of days. And what's so remarkable about the vision is that there's this heavenly being who is divine and godlike, but he's also like a son of man. He's also like a human. Here's what Daniel writes. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel saw the Son of Man receiving glory and an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away, that cannot be destroyed. And Jesus is saying here that he's that son of man. 
He's the one Daniel saw receive an everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days. And that this glorious, powerful, majestic person who is meant to rule and reign over an everlasting kingdom, this is the person who is going to be delivered over to Gentiles and die a shameful, cursed death being crucified by the Romans. So I tried to think to myself, what would be something comparable to this? And it would be like the President of the United States, while still in office, being chained and drugged through a city. Being arrested and flogged, can you imagine that? It is truly the most glorious person suffering the most humiliating thing. To the Jewish mind, the idea that the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 could ever die a cursed death at the hands of unclean Gentiles is utterly incomprehensible. So when we think about what is about to happen to Jesus, we cannot do so without keeping all of this in mind. But even apart, even apart from what we know about Jesus from the Old Testament, just think about everything we've learned from Matthew. Think about the kind of power and authority Jesus has as he teaches and heals and casts out demons and raises the dead. He can calm a storm. He clearly has power over authority, power and authority over the natural realm and the spiritual realm. He has authority over life and death. He teaches like someone who knows and controls everything about religion and philosophy and life. Somebody like that, somebody with that much knowledge and power can never be defeated. When you read the New Testament, Jesus is like the ultimate superhero. I stopped watching the Avengers movies because it felt like they just had all the power in the world and it just wasn't interesting anymore. And Jesus literally has all the power in the world. And yet he's going to die. And to top it off, he's the kind of person who not only knows in detail what is about to happen to him and how terrible it will be, but he's the kind of person who willingly goes to Jerusalem anyway to let it happen. He knows the future because he wrote it, and he won't change it, no matter how terrible it is, because he has a purpose for it. Which begs the question then, what is that purpose? Or why is it going to happen? Have you ever wondered why God just couldn't forgive sinners without all the blood and crucifixion and sending his own son to die on the cross? I mean, he's God, right? Why did Jesus have to become human, be humiliated, suffer and die an excruciating death just to forgive our sins. Couldn't there have been another way? And the answer is no. 
This is, this is the only way. A few chapters from now, Jesus is going to be on his hands and knees, pleading with his father, sweating blood, asking if there is another way. And if that couldn't cause God to find another way, that tells us that this is the only way. And in verses 20 to 28 of our passage, we get a few hints and a few clear reasons for why Jesus had to suffer and die. And the first one is implied, and that is the fact that there is nothing more glorious than humility. There is nothing more glorious than humility. Think about this, right? Is there anything more impressive to you than someone who has every right to receive praise but chooses humility instead? The good deed done in secret intended to go unnoticed. Even when I watch the press conferences after a football game, if the quarterback is deflecting the praise to his linemen and his receivers, I'm impressed by that. Think about the boss, right, who, who comes down and gets his hands dirty to work alongside his people. But how can God, who must receive all praise... Because it would be wrong not to tell everyone about what he's like and all that he's done. How can a God like that become humble? Because he's never prideful either. When he tells us about himself or the things that he's done, and then when he demands praise, he's not being prideful. He's being truthful. And when we praise him, we're not building up his ego as if somehow he's so fragile that he needs to be told how great he is. No, when we praise him, we're just acknowledging reality and we're doing the thing that gives us the most joy. He's too great and too worthy to ever have the opportunity to show humility because he should be rightfully praised at all times for all things. Unless, somehow, he humbles himself. This is the Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he, Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there's nothing more glorious than humility. And there is no humility more glorious than when the most glorious being humbles himself in the most humiliating way possible by becoming just like something he created and by obeying when he is meant to command and by dying a shameful, cursed death on the cross when he is meant to rule. And Jesus' humility is his glory And his glory is on display in his humility. One commentator put it this way. 
The display of divine glory shines most brightly when it is set aside for the sake of redeeming man by a shameful death. So one of the reasons Jesus did what he did is to show us his glory through his humility so that he would receive the name that is above all names and so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and so the Father will be glorified. And this is what James and John did not understand. You see, right after Jesus teaches the parable of the vineyard worker that we looked at a few weeks ago, to hammer home the point about the first being last and the last being first, right after that, Jesus just finished predicting his own death for the third time, this happens. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, we don't know why James and John put their mom up to this. It could be that it was her suggestion. Um, She recognizes that uh, her sons are part of Jesus's inner circle, his two of his closest friends. It could be they know it would sound a bit too self-serving and self-indulgent if they just asked themselves. We don't know. But the point is this. They obviously do not yet understand what it really means to follow Jesus. And even if they did understand and believe that Jesus is going to die and rise again on the third day, they clearly think he's going to set up his kingdom right away, afterward. So they don't yet get it. That to be his disciple really will mean taking up their own cross and following him. Because at the end of this upcoming week for Jesus, the only people who are going to be on his right and on his left are two criminals being crucified next to him. The second reason Jesus had to suffer and die is to bear the wrath of God. So even though it's John and James' mother who asks Jesus this question, Jesus directs his answer directly to them, and this is what we read. You do not know what you are asking. (laughs) You don't even know what you're asking, he says to them. One commentator said, um, because the only way to reign with Jesus is to suffer with him. You don't know what you're asking, Because if you want to be on my right and my left, that that requires suffering. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. So now Jesus describes what's about to happen in terms of drinking the cup, which makes you wonder, what is this cup Jesus is going to drink? And to help us with this, we've already talked about Jesus asking the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane if there could be another way. Well, what he actually said is, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. See, drinking the cup is a metaphor for judgment. Later in the book of Revelation, John writes about what will happen to someone who will not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And he says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup 
of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So either Jesus will drink the wine of God's wrath in our place, or we will drink it ourselves. And this image comes from the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, God describes his coming wrath on the wicked nations as drinking a cup. Jeremiah writes, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. And in the book of Isaiah, God tells his own people that his discipline on them is complete. He says, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. So when Jesus talks about what is about to happen to him in terms of drinking the cup, the cup he is referring to is the cup of God's judgment and wrath. So why then does he say that John and James will drink it too? Well, because if we want to be his disciple, we must take up our cross and follow him. But our suffering is not judgment and wrath. Our suffering is identity. When we suffer for the name of Jesus, we identify with him and follow in his footsteps. We reflect his humility. We show our faith that we would rather belong to him, even if that means we suffer. Because to know him and to be known by him is the greatest situation to have in this life. It's so great that it's worth suffering for. So when James and John do suffer, they will suffer in his strength, with his power, by his grace, because Jesus went before them to the cross. Now, we said the second reason Jesus had to suffer and die was to bear the wrath of God, but that's actually incomplete, right? He didn't just bear God's wrath, he did it in our place. So he bore the wrath of God for his people. When the rest of the disciples find out what James and John asked for, they're jealous and angry that James and John asked for high positions in the kingdom first. And so Jesus has to tell them that real greatness and authority are shown through service to others. And then he says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is our example. As he humbled himself and served others, we are to humble ourselves and serve. This is true greatness. If we really want to be great, we must serve. But then he adds that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And the word ransom is not a word that we use all the time. It's a word that means the price of release. It's a word that was used to describe the payment made for a slave. If you buy a slave, you pay the ransom for that slave. And every human being is born enslaved to sin and death. We stand condemned by God. We deserve to drink the cup of the wine of God's wrath. We deserve to suffer the penalty for our sins. But Jesus, Jesus left heaven 
He left the glory he had with the Father before the world was made, and he became one of us. He went to the cross, and on the cross he drank the cup of the wine of God's wrath, and in so doing he paid the ransom price for many. And the many that he's talking about here are all those who he has chosen who will believe in him. Those who know they are sinners who have offended God. They know they are guilty and stand condemned before him, but they believe that Jesus died for them. They believe that his blood was the payment. As the Apostle Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There was no other way to save sinners like us. Our sin is too great for God to just look the other way and pretend like it doesn't matter. God's justice demands to be satisfied. Good judges don't free criminals. But because of his great love and mercy, he chose to save us by becoming one of us, taking our place, buying our freedom with his own blood. So he came in the person of Jesus Christ and laid down his own life for everyone who will believe in his name. So that's what he did. That's why he did it. And now finally, what does it mean for us who believe? So if we are someone whose eyes have been opened to see and believe what Jesus did and why he did it, what does that mean for us? There are a few things we see, some we've alluded to already, but the first thing, the first thing is that God chooses our position in life and eternity. So James and John and the rest of the disciples are so worried about their place in the kingdom and they so desperately want a high position, just like the rest of us, right? They want honor and power and prestige without having to suffer. They've left everything to follow Jesus. He's promised them a reward, and it's like they can't stop thinking about what it's going to be. But notice what Jesus says to them. He says, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So you will suffer, because everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. But you will end up, but where you end up in the kingdom, well, that's already been prepared by the Father. And that might sound like bad news because we so desperately want to earn our place. We want to make a name for ourselves. But this is actually the best news ever. Because it means we don't have to worry about our position we don't have to worry about how great we are or what other people think about us. We simply receive our position in life and eternity, whatever it is, because it's been prepared for us already by the Father. Our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our circumstances in this life, our rewards in the next, it's all already been prepared by God. You see, we may not like the life that God has given us, but true peace comes 
not from trying to change anything that God has prepared for us, but by accepting who and what he's made us to be. That means if you are a man, be a man. If you are a woman, be a woman. Embrace all of what that is and who God says we are and what that means for us in his word. Whatever position or circumstance in this life, receive it as a gift. He's given me certain struggles and temptations. He's given you certain struggles and temptations. But our entire life is a gift prepared for us by God and received in faith from God. And because of that, we can rest. Knowing that he is good and that he is faithful to all of his promises, we don't have to envy, we don't have to worry about missing out on anything. Christians should never experience FOMO in this life, which for those of you who don't know is fear of missing out. We are free to love and serve others. He has ransomed us from slavery to sin and death, and now we are free to serve and love, which is the second thing that this means for us. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You see, we receive our position in life from God as a gift, which frees us to follow Jesus' example. We are free to pursue greatness by serving others, by counting others more significant than ourselves. We pursue being first by actually actively pursuing being last. Now, this doesn't mean we don't use our gifts and abilities to lead and to teach and to take any authority. If that is the position God has prepared for us, then we receive it. But we don't use it to seek our own glory in our own kingdom. We use it for the good of others. We serve those we lead. We consider ourselves a slave to Christ so that our neighbor might come to know him and find peace in him. And the world uses power for personal gain. They use it for prestige. And because they don't trust God for their position in life, they are weak and afraid of losing their power. There's an insecurity and a paranoia that comes along with worldly power. But for people who are set free and who see that apart from Christ, we stand condemned under the wrath of God, destined to drink the wine of his wrath, if we see that's our fate, but that Jesus came to suffer in our place, nothing else matters, truly. Nothing in this life is as important as clinging to Jesus as our only hope. And since he has ransomed us from slavery to sin and death, we live knowing that our biggest problem in life is our sin. Because if Jesus did what he did just to save us from our sin, that must necessarily mean that our sin is the biggest problem in our life. And the final scene in our passage is of two men that Jesus meets on the way out of Jericho, and he's about to climb the mountain into Jerusalem. And these men are both blind. 
They both know that he's the son of David. Somehow they have enough faith to know that this is the long-awaited Messiah who can heal them. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let, us, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So Jesus is leaving Jericho. He's about to go into Jerusalem. He's surrounded by crowds. Some of these crowds have been following him his whole ministry. Other segments of these crowds are people who are just going to Jerusalem because the Passover is about to happen. He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, knowing what's about to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem, yet he is able to stop and hear the cry of a blind beggar, two of them. And everybody in that crowd thinks he's got better things to do, and yet Jesus, in his kindness, and his humility, and his grace, is willing to stop and listen to the cry of a beggar, who wants mercy. And if we're honest, that's all of us this morning. All of us know the experience of being under the taskmaster of our sin. Even when we know we're freed from it, we still hear his voice screaming, telling us to obey him and not our new master. And sometimes we stumble and fall and we do obey him. And yet we have a king who will always slow down and hear our cries for mercy, who promises to heal us and let us follow him. And everything he's done for us shows that this is the king we serve. May we worship him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for this display of Jesus, what he's done for us, why he did it, what it means for us, knowing, Father, that we can cry out to him and that grace and mercy are on infinite supply to blind beggars like us. And it is his name we pray. Amen.